Hello. Thank you for joining me and listening in on this podcast where I interview guests on all things education. My guests will share stories about their educational background, their views on teaching and learning, and where they see education heading. I interview teachers, edtech founders, higher ed folks, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. everyone. This is Nati Rodriguez, and I have Rapal Natucci, a founder of STEM Ed Labs and Neotech Labs with me today. Hi, Rapal. Hi, Nati. I'm really interested in hearing from founders, teachers, and practitioners in education about where they feel the field is at at the moment and what they're looking forward to in the future. To get started, I'd like to first ask you about your own education and what that was like. So I think at least my early education was fairly typical in that I grew up in a small town in South Texas, uh, attended the local public school. Nothing, I think, particularly noteworthy in either way about the school itself. You know, I, I think as we, as all students hopefully have, uh, you know, there's some, there's some teachers that definitely helped shape my journey along the way, particularly as I got into kind of middle school and high school, where I then moved on to programs outside of the town that I grew up in and actually went to a program here in Texas called the Texas Academy of Math and Science, which really then kind of exposed me to A, students from across the state of Texas. And I and that was probably the first time that I really got exposed to students that went to bigger schools, uh, especially in, in cities. And then also as a way to get exposed to just what are other universities that people are looking at you know, beyond the state and, and things like that. So it was definitely an, an eye-opening experience for me at, at that point. And how did you hear about this program and how did you end up at the summer camp? No, sorry. It, it's actually, it's a two-year program. So you you jump ship from your high school that you attend after your sophomore year and it's residential. So we would actually, they have a dorm for us at the University of North Texas. So it's <laughs> it's one of those things where they, uh, they have to convince parents to basically let their high school kids go off to effectively college after their sophomore year. And it's a program that I think even now, it's, I mean, it's been around, I think we were the ninth class so, you know, it started late 80s, early 90s timeframe. And it still isn't, I would say, particularly well known. And at the time, definitely was not. I, I happened to hear of it really just serendipitously. One of the classes that I, I did when I was in middle school was, uh, it was basically, I guess, a volunteer service class and that we would go in and, and work with the special education kids. And we were basically working for the teachers in those classrooms. And it just so happened that the teacher that I worked under in that class, her daughter had applied to the program. And as we were talking, she just sort of randomly said, hey, this is a program that you should probably look at when you get to high school. And I was like, yeah, okay. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as kids are in middle school, sort of like that. That sounds great. That's two years away. That's, you know, infinity at that time, right? But that was like where it got seated in my mind. And when I, you know, did get to that age, I kind of followed up with it. But yeah, it, was, it just happened to be because of that connection. That's incredible. I'm always surprised and maybe not pleasantly surprised to hear that some of the times when students run across these amazing programs that change their lives, that it was just kind of coincidence. Someone mentioned a program, a counselor happened to say, hey, are you interested in this? But not every student has a parent that's actually looking for these types of programs and these experiences for students. And I wonder how many are out there that students just don't know about that they would be a perfect fit for. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially in my case, and I would imagine this is common for other, you know, kids that are that are children of immigrants, you know, a lot of times it's a win that you have access to education, right? Um, and, and you take it back then where there wasn't the internet, where you can just go Google for things. You know, I, I think parents were just happy that they were able to send their kids to a school and all of this other stuff. There was, I think, definitely less awareness, much less a channel 
by which parents can go out and, and find out, you know, what are these other programs that are out there. So um, I, I'm with you in that I'm amazed that so much of that still exists. But you know, I think particularly in whether it's underprivileged communities or, or communities of, of immigrants, where there's just you don't even know what you don't know. <laughs> yes. And, and so after you completed those two years, what happened then? And what career have you pursued? Yeah, so it's actually interesting, because one of the in that program, one of their biggest selling points is that if you stay within state, you automatically transfer two years of credit. So if you go to a UT or an A&M, or and I think at the time, Rice was fairly uh, flexible in terms of bringing all your credits in. We start as a junior, right? And so I would say at the time, you know, especially my senior year, I was probably fairly sure just between that and the economics of the situation that I would head to a state school. It just so happened that just because of friends that I had in Tams, we were applying to other schools out of the state, MIT, Caltech, you know, those types of schools that you hear about and you're like, that'd be awesome to have the opportunity to go there. Uh, but you also know, you know, very competitive. And so I, I ended up applying to those schools and was lucky enough to be accepted and ended up going to MIT. Had one of my roommates, or I should say sweetmates from TAMS actually attend there with me. So it was nice. We both headed up there. And it was funny because going back to TAMS, we were both from small town, South Texas. Neither one of us had heard of this program when we were like freshmen and sophomores. And it just so happened that not only did we both end up going, but then we both ended up going to MIT together at the same time. I, I knew going in that I wanted to do engineering. You know, at the time, technology and computers were a big thing. So I decided to pick computer science, double E as my major, mainly because uh, just the way MIT was structured, you can choose computer science, double E, or there was an in-between that they called the 6-2 program. And because it forced me to not make a decision between the two, that's what I did. Because <laughs> I love the math of double E, but I, I love programming, you know, as much as I've been exposed to. And so that's kind of how I chose my major. I'm not, not the most in-depth thought process, right? But, uh, you know, everything from there was just kind of organically leading me down the route of, I, I decided to pursue grad school from there. Again, stayed within computer science and then bounced into industry out of grad school, joined Microsoft Research and ended up kind of growing my career from there. Got it. And reflecting on your own educational experience, coming from a small town in Texas, ending up at MIT, and then pursuing even more degrees in education, what do you think the purpose of education is now? If I had to put it into one sentence, the goal should be as a system, right, to produce independent thinkers that are motivated and self-enabled to help build a better world, right? It sounds idealistic, but at the same time, I think that should be the goal, right? As parents, I think uh, definitely that's what you want to see, right? Your, your children being able to have a, a vision for how they think they can benefit the world and being able to affect that change that they, that they want to see. And, and I think the teachers and educators to a large extent would agree with that as well. I mean, the devil's always in the details, but I think that's that's the purpose as an overall Goal. When you say that, I think everybody is in agreement on that. But sometimes I feel that we lose sight of it in the everyday getting through school, getting grades, and then applying to certain schools, getting it or not getting in. Somehow that gets lost. You know, I think one of the things, if you strike that out a little bit, again, I think nobody would disagree if you said, well, the how of how you achieve that general goal is helping students learn how to learn. And really within that, what you're really trying to do is help them continuously grow, right? Both when they're in K to 12, but you know, that journey never ends. It, and I think fundamentally what that requires, right, just from a, both an education standpoint, but really from a psychological standpoint is there's always this continuing tension between learning new skills or expanding your skills in a specific domain and finding ways to apply those skills that challenge you just enough to force you to grow, right? So it's the old, you can't put Shakespeare in front of a five-year-old, that's too far removed, right? But as they're first able to learn how to sound out letters and then form words and then read, you know, early age books, and you're always kind of stretching and expanding them, I think we're very comfortable what that means with very young children, right? Learning basic arithmetic and reading and those fundamental skills, I think where we tend to get lost is as both children grow, but then as the world changes, right? And what is the next thing to learn or what is the right set of challenges? 
And, and I think as a society, we have this tension between wanting definition and a way to measure it, but then providing flexibility so that we can adapt to the changes around us. And, and that's where I think are these artifacts that we talk about and we debate over in terms of what's going on with education and what's the right quote unquote direction versus then the implied wrong direction. I see that as being kind of the seed of where those divergences happen. Yes, yes. One thing that you mentioned that has become increasingly important to me is how do we help students, young kids or learners maybe of all ages figure out who they are and where their place is in the world. Yes, I think education can and does it well, for the most part, deliver the content knowledge. But as you're able to get more of that on the internet or learn on your own, I think I see the increasing importance of schools being a place where students can figure out who they are and how to interact with others. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting because I look back on that and even when I talk to adults today, right, there was never, never really a time where I think we were in a position to do that, either in school or, or even as you enter your career field, right? But, but at, at the same time, at some point, it's implied that you have the answer to that, right? Uh, in terms of when you're, when you're forced to make that career choice or that next job that you're going to take. So it's one of those things that I, I think implicitly we assume that we've all come to terms with the answer to that question, but we never create the space and the opportunity for that to happen, right? Now, I, I do think it's interesting that we're increasingly starting to, to place schools and education as, as the source of when that should happen. Uh, but I do think that's a, that's a shift in just thought, right? Both from parents and I think increasingly uh, society. And, and I see that as a good thing, but I think it's, it's one of those, there was never an answer to that, at least in my mind. And it's just now that we're able to Maybe whether you look at we had the opportunity or, or we're at the point in kind of maturity in how, you know, what we expect of our education system that we're, we're starting to look at that question. I, I think the answer to that in the end is somewhat still open, but I, I think where we're starting to see some early traction and early promises is really around, you know, I, I think a common term that you hear is this project-based learning, right? It, but even then, I think what's important there is having students work on projects that they find important, right? So at the earliest stages, asking the students, what is something that is interesting to you? And, and what would you want to work on relative to that, right? Because I think that muscle of finding out who you are requires other muscles, you know, whether you call that self-awareness and being able to self-reflect, that's sort of the iterative feedback loop that needs to happen. And I think those muscles psychologically aren't emphasized in schools today, and they need to be, right? And I think that's that's something that requires creating both the environments for, but then providing the space for teachers to actually go and spend time on, on those types of activities, because it is time intensive, right? And it then becomes difficult to measure. Yes. Yes. I was just having a conversation with someone recently about um, this idea of reflection, and that is the space and the time when when there's growth, when you can kind of look back and see what worked, what didn't, or why something happened. And teachers sometimes, one, they don't have the time to reflect. Uh, so I, I don't know that students are also given the time to reflect. But what, what I do see that's promising is that that is being in, um, increasingly found important and that time is being created for students and um, educators to figure out how to best improve their practice and their learning. So on, on that note, what do you think education is getting right at the moment? Uh, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. And, you know, I, I think in some ways, it, it's an improperly positioned question in that, you know, by, by answering what, it gets, what it's getting right, it, it implies that there's something that it's inherently getting wrong. Uh, 
And I'll, and I'll maybe riff on that by saying, if you look at it, education in, in the broad sense is, is kind of the, the product that's out there today, you have to look at it in the context of what are the set of problems it's trying to solve, right? And I think right now, if, if you and I sat down and were trying to define the system de novo, we would currently have to list the problems that it's trying to solve would span everything from giving students these kind of underlying content knowledge, the skills, right? The psychological points that we brought up about being able to build a definition of who they are, but then all the way down to things like future for society, it, it extends into providing a form of, of childcare, right? It's helping to solve the problem of uh, food insecurity. And so as you start broadening the envelope of what the system is having to try and solve, it's hard to really say that you wouldn't come up with the solution being what it looks like today, right? And to some extent, I think it's doing a good job given what it's being asked to do. And I think like a lot of product exercises, the trick is in saying, what are things that we can remove so we can have a more effective product for the set of problems that remain that we're wanting to solve, right? You know, I honestly look at this and I, and I spend time thinking about it, that if, if you look at, again, that, that broad set of problems that are, our education system is having to try and solve within the budgetary constraints that we place on it, uh, it's really hard to argue that it's way off base, right? I think the fundamental thing is, if we want to see it change, we have to answer the hard questions around, do we want to put more resources in it? Do we want to remove some of the problems we're asking it to solve, right? It, it's a system design problem, I think, versus a is the current solution wrong, given the criteria that we're imposing on it? That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, yes. When you brought up food insecurity, it made me think of all the other things that school provides to students that they just would not have access to otherwise. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the, the toughest part is the teachers in the middle, right? Like they're being asked to do so many things. Uh, and, and then, you know, you look at the recent news and there are certain skills that we're saying teachers should have that I'm like, there's no way. It's a <laughs> Yes. Um, oh my gosh. And it, it, it just, you know, there's so, there's only so much you can ask from them, you know, again, being caught in the middle in terms of they're the ones that are working with students. And I don't think anybody's going to argue that, you know, we as country and society give them even reasonable resources, much less unlimited resources, but we ask so much, right? And again, it's 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 one of those things that when you look at that equilibrium, and sometimes I look at it and say, um, we should be happy that it's not worse. <laughs> yeah. uh, given that, you know, again, just, just the various uh, dimensions of the problem. Yes, yes, good point. Um, so I'd like to ask you a little bit about the three greatest teachers or mentors that, that you've had in your career and as a student. Um, these could be teachers. These could be mentors now. Who are these three people and what impact have they had on your life? And I just said three. It could be any any number. I would say that, again, especially for me, when I think of my greatest teachers are the ones that had the, the most impact on, on overall trajectory of, of kind of where my education went. It, it, a lot of that probably happened in, you know, that middle school, high school range, right? And, and I think there were specific examples. All of them, I think the common, the commonality of, these, of what they all did was they advocated on my behalf in some way that they definitely didn't have to, right? It was above and beyond the call of duty. And, and, and it was very much because it was something that they felt was right for me, right? And an example of that, I think, again, that, that really then kind of laid the foundation was I had a teacher in middle school who, you know, he was my math teacher and he, and he uh, I guess, just decided I was bored out of my mind um, <laughs> and broached the conversation with my parents. And, and I think he brought in the principal. And I just remember he, he was being proactive on it. And he basically said, you need to not do seventh grade math, you should just go straight to doing algebra and forget this other stuff. And it got into this bigger conversation on, is that right? And, you know, all these other things. And he, he again, was the advocate because my parents were supportive, right? But 
they didn't know what the inherent trade-offs were of even trying to make this decision, right? So the fact that he took the time to go in there uh, and have these sessions and and really even just say for me, this is what the student needs because of XYZ and kind of supporting the case and then making that happen. You know, that, that was definitely a, a, a changing point because it, you know, just nuts and bolts. I wasn't bored the next year in math. But, but then, you know, one of the subtle things that I learned is like, oh, wow, there's, there's always exceptions to rules, right? That this structure that we just assume is there, but it's by no means rigid, right? And then, you know, like any any good kid does, I started playing with that. <laughs> uh, and some some teachers were supportive of it, uh, some were not. But but you know, again, I think as I evolved and went to high school, it was it was those teachers that uh, I would say I did maybe push boundaries a little bit, but uh, and they they would push back as it made sense, but they allowed that growth to happen, right? So even even as I got in high school again, you know, one of my teachers that, that I had for I think two years uh, or a year as, as a math teacher, but, you know, she allowed us even as we were doing things like uh, academic competitions where, you know, as a small school, we didn't really have the resources other than trying to get buses, you know, budgets for buses to take us to these things. So a lot of it was we as a students had to self-organize, right? Like we were our own coaches and <laughs> we had to figure out like, what it meant to prepare for these things and all of that and, and putting in the time to let us a do it, but then, you know, carving out mornings and coming in early to open up the classroom, right? Or staying after and all these things that, it, that again, that, that was well outside standard day duties, but it allowed for that, I think that growth and that confidence that comes in, in terms of uh, going and doing things that you feel you want to work on, even if that path doesn't exist in front of you, right? Uh, and, I, and I think that mindset being laid early on was significantly impactful throughout my life, right? Because it, again, once you shift that mental model of there's a path in front of you, you just put one foot in front of the other to, oh, wow, there's actually no frame. You define what the system should be for yourself and then act upon that. It's very empowering. And at the same time, you impose challenges on yourself. But I think those in those, at least those two cases, um, it was those individual experiences and really them putting that extra time in that, that was so impactful for me. Yeah, you know, hear, hearing you talk about that reminds me of the, I guess, somehow I figured out, I'll step back a little bit. In my in my family, you know, basically we were raised to follow the orders of whatever the teacher or any authority figure said. <laughs> so we went, I got to school following the rules. But I think by middle school, maybe early high school, I realized that, oh, uh, I actually have a lot of, um, not sway, but like I've gotten a lot of, you know, points for being a good student that I can ask for these things and they will make it work. (laughs) And that was completely surprising. Like, oh, I want to take this extra class and it's not offered here and they're going to let me go take it somewhere else. Or um, I want to join these two teams that normally no one is allowed to, but they'll make this ex- exception. And that's when I started feeling my own sense of like agency and, and, and empowerment, like you said. And that's largely shaped how I operate now, knowing that there are suggested ways of doing things, but you can always figure it out based on your own needs and also matching what you want with what an organization or a group of people want it as well. Yeah. And, and, and I think once you realize that, and then you realize the the value of having to struggle through something, right? <laughs> uh, you go and, and find opportunities because again, it's, it is that growth mentality, right? And, and it's not always academics because I think even going back to my own experiences, I think one of the things that I found out early is uh, I am the antithesis of, of athletic, but I found that participating in sports was good because it was so difficult for me, right? Mm. Um, 
And it was, it was another way to exercise and take that, those same sets of muscles in terms of finding something that you want to go do, setting goals, kind of struggling through it, but in, in a different way. But, you know, again, you're building those same muscles in terms of the self-discipline, the self-awareness, right? And saying, yeah, I, you know, so-and-so next to me can get from A to B in a month. It may take me three, right? But that would be a reasonable goal. Like even, even trying to, to do the same thing, the same exercises that you would do in kind of that traditional academic setting. But, but I think within sports and athletics it is, is just as important. And, and I think that's one of the things that I think it is sometimes either overemphasized in the wrong way or underemphasized in, in some ways, which is when you give students the flexibility to kind of pick and choose what they're doing with their extracurriculars in a way where they can go deep as they want to, right? So I, I, what, what I mean by that is when I look, look around today and you see kids that are doing like 12 different extracurriculars, there's no way they can <laughs> spend a significant time on any one. But again, when, when I was in school, maybe it was one of the luxuries of being in, in a small school uh, in a rural town is that when I decided that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend three, four hours a day just doubling down on something for a few months, I was able to do that, right? And again, it's, it's one of those breath versus death trade-offs that you're making continuously in life. Making those proactively versus re- in a reactionary way, I think is one of the most important things that, that students should learn how to do. So on that note, uh, what do you, so you have children of your own, right? Um, what, what are the two or three most important things that you teach your own children? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And I think that Especially as parents, you're always uh, you're always struggling to pass on, I guess, those key lessons that you feel are important. And I, and I think the you know the two or three that I I, I try to get across, <laughs> um, and some of this is also individualized, right? Because I have uh, we have two daughters, and they have different personalities, right? So you know one of the things that we want both of them to to learn is learning how to fail well. And so I know I know a common thing we hear is learning how to fail fast, and that's that's great in kind of entrepreneurship and business. But but I think more broadly, this notion of learning how to fail well, which is in my mind teaching my kids like you shouldn't fear failure, right? Don't be so risk averse that you're always taking on things that you know you can do. So don't fear failing, but then also when failure happens, learn how to reflect back on it and learn from it, right? Because I think that's, again, something that we don't often do. It, something goes wrong, and then we just want to shove it away, right? It's a, it's a test that has an F on it, you shove it in the folder at the bottom, and you never want to look at it again. So I, I think those go hand in hand under, the, under that theme of like learning how to fail well. The other one is ignore the noise that's around you and take the time to, to focus on being yourself. And I think that goes really well with the question you asked earlier about finding the time of how do you find out who you are, right? And, and, I, and I clump when I say ignore the noise, I clump myself in the noise right? uh, very much of like, yeah, I, I'm going to tell you stuff and, and I'm going to give you advice and things like that. And, but who's to say that I'm right, right? Um, now, you know, that one I may not emphasize as much depending on <laughs> what's going on. But I, I think it's one of the lessons that I do want to pass on is you have to, there's so much around you saying this is what you should do. This is how you should think. Or these are the things that define success that you have to ignore that and think about for yourself what's important, right? Now, I think the last one, and again, this is one that, that I feel that uh, it really varies on personalities, but learn how to give and ask for help. You know, the first, I think, is just in line with being someone who wants to give back and, and help others around you. But then the other part of that in terms of asking for help, I, I think that's, that goes hand in hand with that fear and failure where, where I think oftentimes students feel like asking for help is a sign of weakness. Whereas to me, I, I think it's a sign of strength because if you're, if you're asking for help, it usually means that you're self-reflective and self-aware enough to know what your weaknesses are and you're being strategic and being able to identify here's someone that could help me with this issue right and i think as long as you're looking at it 
from that lens, it's a great thing and it's a great asset. But but again, I think it's one of those things that's often underemphasized, or at least in practice, I think you definitely get this, I shouldn't ask for help because it makes me look bad type of mentality. And, and I definitely don't want my kids to have that. Yeah, that's great. Those are great lessons and uh, ways of interacting with the world. And it's great that they're learning that now. Well, like I said, it's, it's the goal is to get that across, right? Uh, we'll see if the delivery is as effective as I hope. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you, have you seen examples of them um, practicing one of these? I think, you know, they're, what I've been really happy with is especially their willingness to help other kids with lessons. So uh, we, we actually homeschool. So they are often in environments where they are either with peers that are much more advanced than them in certain areas or vice versa. And whenever they're, they're in an, an environment where they can help somebody with, whether it's uh, a certain skill set or even something they've learned or they're passionate about, they're so it, it excites them actually to share what they know, right? Which is, which I think is something we all want to see. So, so that's one that I definitely see and I'm, and I'm happy to see them get so excited to share what they know and to, and to help others. That's great. Um, I'd love to ask about the decision to homeschool. What made you decide to homeschool your children rather than um, putting them in the education system or private school or any other type of um, learning environment? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think that when we, it wasn't, it wasn't a well-planned ahead decision in that it wasn't something where, when we had kids, we knew out of the gate we were going to homeschool. It kind of came up organically when our older daughter was getting to the point where, you know, we had to start looking at schools and, and things like that. And we were just talking about it and looking at the options out there uh, that, you know, with, with within our kind of choices. And it was one of those, well, you know, it's, you know, kindergarten, uh, and we'd already been doing stuff at home, you know, early on in terms of she was, she was uh, avid, an avid reader already, like she'd kind of taught herself how to read. And, you know, it was one of those, well, maybe it'd be, it wouldn't be the biggest risk just to be like, let's see what happens if we homeschool for kindergarten, right? And then we just kind of decided as we started that process of let's take it year to year. <laughs> and if we think we can handle it, we'll try the next year. And if not, then we'll figure out what the right next step is. So I think it's very much just an organic thing of looking at our situation, uh, kind of what our kids were interested in, what we think they would have the ability to learn the things that they, they wanted to learn. And then relative to kind of the choices that we had in front of us. Got it. And how many years have you been doing this now? Uh, well, let's see, our, our older daughter will be turning 10 this summer. So I, I guess effectively, we started this maybe four or five years ago. Well, I should say officially, you know, effectively, it's one of those like, instead of doing pre-K, we, we always had them at home and things like that. But you know, when we made that active decision of, oh, I guess we're homeschooling now, <laughs> uh, was, was probably like, yeah, four or five years ago now. What are the biggest challenges of homeschooling your children? Or maybe homeschool in general? I'm sure you're familiar with how it's implemented elsewhere as well. Well, I mean, I think the um, the challenge is probably the same as it is in, in anything once you realize that th there's there's no inherent right answer, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is the first thing you hit, you know, straight up. And, and this is one of the things about, I think, if you ever look at homeschooling and, and the communities is everybody's doing it for a different reason. And so everybody has their right answer, right? So there's there's no kind of checklist of here's exactly what you should do to go implement this. Uh, and so what you end up having to do is come up with your own process for effectively running a school for your kids, right? And everything that comes with it of how do you, how do you check the boxes on making sure that they're having the opportunity to socialize with peers and, and just play. I think especially at the young age, creative play is just a, 
a great way to to learn and explore and become creative and, and take things that you're learning and apply them in different ways, right? And, and then the other part in terms of like just identifying if you're going to use curriculum, what, what should it be? Um, you know, as especially you get older and you're looking at environments that they might need access to, that becomes just a challenge of identifying them, right? But but I think that a lot of this is the things that you would probably be doing regardless of whether you choose to homeschool per se. It's, it's just a ability that now you have more flexibility on, on the time, right? Which is one of the biggest values that we see in, in terms of for them is having that flexibility to, if you want to spend, you know, three days fo- hyper-focused on a specific activity or project, you can do that because you don't have to shift from period A to period B. You can devote the next three hours to something if you want to. Uh, but yeah, I think the challenges are definitely in, on applying the right definition for, for us, right? Uh, and that's an ongoing thing, right? Because it changes based on their interests and, and where they are. And, and so you're having to, you know, play principal teacher and all this other stuff. Yes. <laughs> Can you give us an example of one thing that your your children are working on now? What has piqued their curiosity? Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess one of the things that they've been, well, they've loved to do for a while now. I mean, so they, you know, I think all kids love nature, right? And uh, they will just grab critters and animals that they see. And, and so they've been, uh, for a few a couple years now, they've been catching lizards around the house. And they'll, you know, so that led to just a bunch of learning everything to know about them. And over the past, I would say six months or so, then it was trying to create the habitats and, and come up with like sustainable ways to feed them. And, and just, you know, so one of the projects we're working on now is actually creating their own little cricket farm that they can use to feed lizards they catch, but then also turn that into a business where they sell those crickets to vendors and, and friends and stuff like that. So um, they're in the middle of figuring out how do you effectively uh, breed crickets. And that's, that's interesting for everybody. Cause I haven't ever looked at this before. Um, that's incredible. So I mean, it, it just, <laughs> that's just an example of like just something they started like an interest that started years ago and then it just kind of evolves. Right. Cause yeah, they it can, they can sit there and tell you all kinds of wonderful trivia about uh, these insects that they catch and, and things like that and how they breed and the way that, you know, they, the males will attract females and, and scare off other males and all this stuff. Right. And it's, it's, it's facts and stuff that, uh, that the reason that they're learning it is because they care so much about it. Right. Whereas if we had artificially said, Hey, we're going to learn everything there is to know about these types of reptiles just as factual things for them to memorize, that would be fighting tooth and nail, right? And <laughs> it would be a lose-lose situation. But yeah, that, yeah, that's one that's, in, in, and again, it's, it's been, it works end-to-end because they actually going out and talking to people and um, they went to a pet store and like, kind of pitched what they're doing. And the lady actually homeschooled her children when they were young. And so she was like incredibly supportive and said, yeah, I'll, I'll buy your crickets when you're able to breed them. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's been a, one of the recent projects that they picked up. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Um it makes me wonder how we can recreate these experiences in, in schools. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, you know, I think, I think it's one of those things that um, if, again, if, if we started De Novo and we emphasize that it's about bringing the right people and resources to bear within, a, within environments and just let students and teachers run with it, I think you would see this organically. Because that's effectively what, you know, I think a lot of these, even homeschool families and communities are doing, right? They're they're sort of like little incubators, except each, each sample set is the students within the household, right? Mm-hmm. And even there, like, you know, there's, there's effective communities and, you know, there are homeschool-specific programs and, and stuff that they attend. So they're working with each other. But, but I think that you would, that would naturally extrapolate out to schools at scale. Now, of course, there's lots of other challenges you have to deal with from an infrastructure perspective and logistics. But, but I, at least in my mind, I think that you would see some of this uh, if you remove some of the other, you know, it goes back to the earlier conversation points around. If you, if you remove some of the problems that you're trying to solve so that you provide more flexibility, I think you would see some of this. Yes, yes. 
so I'd like to switch gears a little bit, or maybe it's right on target, but uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about STEM Ed Labs and how that came about and uh, what projects you're working on within STEM Ed Labs. Yeah, uh, STEM Ed Labs started right around the time, you know, I'd say like four, four and a half years ago, when we had moved to Austin, and it was kind of this confluence of different things happening kind of in, in my life, and then also within, you know, the, the community we were in, where I wanted to, you know, previously I'd been, where we lived in Seattle, I'd been engaged with kind of education and schools there, and I wanted to re-engage in, you know, Austin, which is our, our new home. And then we were, in, you know, internally having these conversations about, what are we doing with our own kids? Because they were getting to school age. And, and so this became this sort of, you know, as I'm going out talking to teachers and students with my, you know, how can I contribute to the community and then the internal conversations, it was the merging of all these things into one in terms of going out there and saying, well, I think there's these gaps. There are these experiences that I think would be valuable that I want my own kids to have access to. And if I'm going to go through figuring out what that means, well, why don't we take it the next step forward and figure out what it means to make that accessible in as much as we have the capacity to do so, right? And, and that's kind of, I would say, the, the seed of at least why we started STEM Ed Labs. Uh, now it's, it's evolved quite a bit in terms of the programming and, and things like that over the years, but it's really been kind of that channel, like the, you know, in terms of taking some of what I'm seeing and what I've learned and trying to make these opportunities broadly accessible for, for students and, and families that see the value of it and want, want that for themselves. Got it. And what is your vision for STEM Ed Labs in the next two years? Where do you hope to be? We are just this year, you know, we started a, a pilot, say, a year and a half ago, what we called Innovation Learning Pathway. So it was a program that really captures the essence of having students define and work on projects that are important to them. So going back to the point of like, how do you know who you are? Well, you should try and define a project that reflects what you care about and then go as deep into it, as deeply into it as you can, right? Uh, and then the program provides a support around that with mentorship and facilitation and all of that. So we started a pilot a year and a half ago. And just this year now we're rolling this out in a form that allows it to be accessible to students more broadly than just those that are in central Austin. And so the, you know, the goal over the next year, you know, one to two years is really to roll that out at least statewide, if, if not nationally, and expand from there. You mentioned doing a pilot last year. What were some of the or one of the projects that you were really surprised by or impressed by that the students did? Uh, I mean, so there's the surprise and, and, and impressed. <laughs> so some of the things that, that I think one of the ones that I think surprised me, and this is really, you know, because surprise is always relative to the student, right? In that they're just like any other human, you meet somebody and you set a certain expectation in terms of like, oh, this is what their personality is like, right? And this is kind of what they'll do. And then they go and do something that you're like, wow, that just completely broke the mold <laughs> that I had, you know, incorrectly placed them in, you know, so we, we had a student who seemed very shy, right? Came in, had this idea for, for I think it, when he started, it was an app. Yeah, there, there was a certain idea he had for it. And, and then as you kind of struggled with both in terms of getting the right prototype done, but then really in terms of going out when he was doing validation uh, in terms of users, he realized it wasn't working the way he intended. And so then he just totally scrapped the idea of an app and started going out and just brokering the idea was uh, helping people who want to buy and sell things in a safe way, right? And so he just started brokering deals. Like he was going out and just saying, hey, you have some stuff you want to sell. And it just, it, it was the fact that he was reaching out to people in that way was was surprising for us when we, as a facilitator. So it was, it was, uh, we were impressed with the fact that it, it was just the hustle that he put into it, right? But that it completely went off in this direction of, you know, forget trying to code something. I'm just going to go and figure out how can I go make this business work? And he tried all kinds of channels, like, you know, in terms of Craigslist and Reddit and like calling up, you know, hustling school, you know, friends at, at lunchtime at school. <laughs> so, so that was one that was just interesting in terms of, yeah, just that dynamic of what you 
what you think you expect a student to do and then kind of the direction that they go into. You know, we've seen some other projects where I've just been, in, you know, I think impressed with what they try to take on, right? So I, again, I think one of the most interesting things at that age is you don't shoot yourself down too quickly in terms of saying, oh, that's not possible. Or that, that's too much. Uh, that's too big of a problem for me to try and solve alone. You see a problem, you're like, yeah, I, I can do something about this, right? So projects that start off with trying to solve like food insecurities, for example, we had a student that came in and she was just passionate about this this problem that's out there and and then watching her whittle that down in terms of well how are you going to solve it and in a way that's important to you right and it just so turned out she found design like clothing design extremely like she was just very passionate about it and so she came up with the idea of starting a clothing company that then uses proceeds to help fund uh, food uh, food banks in areas to help students that are uh, impacted by food insecurity at home right so see, you know watch them kind of piece these two these two things together in terms of what do you think is important? What are problems that you're passionate about? And then, oh, by the way, what do you care about? Yeah. And now how are you going to bridge these two, right? Whether it's a research project or, or an idea for a company. It's, you know, it's a lot of fun, right? Because it's, it's every one of these is an adventure for the facilitators and the mentors. And uh, it's just impressive to watch them try and attack these problems with no fear and then kind of grow through the realities of what that means. But yeah, I think it keeps everybody excited and motivated. That's great. Every student should have an opportunity to work with adult mentors to guide them through these ideas. I I work with kids and they <laughs> one they're they're curious and they're um they learn so much so fast. What I would like to see is them to be able to actually devote time to to something for an extended period of time and really really kind of test test their ideas out and grow from the experience, right? Figure out who they are, what worked, what didn't what they want to try next. So it's amazing that STEM Ed Labs is offering this opportunity to students and hopefully to more students across the state. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the one of the most valuable things going back to like some of our earlier talking points is creating the space where they feel they have permission to go do this and invest that time, right? And so one of the things that we see ourselves bringing value toward is just creating that community of students that are, are going to put in that time, right? Because I, I think one of the things, you know, if you're, if you're environments day in and day out where everybody's just focusing on uh, test prep and doing homework and getting great grades. Well, that's the mental model that you live within, right? But if you all of a sudden are exposed to peers that are out there working on these projects that they're personally passionate about and struggling through these problems of like, oh, how do I take that idea and make it tangible? Well, now all of a sudden you feel like you have that permission to also be doing those types of things, right? So that's what we're hoping to we're hoping to create, and, and we're excited to work with uh, the community and kind of expanding our, our our students and our participants. Thank you. And I also want to talk about Neotech Labs. What are you working on for Neotech Labs? And tell me how that got started. In a way, there there are kind of similarities, except it's it's targeted more towards the corporate domain. So that was started after the the last startup I was actually involved with. We you know, moved here, joined a startup, incredible experience watching watching what that looks like. Uh, and prior to that, I had really only been in big corporate environments, right? So I had experience working at Microsoft and at Intel and, and working with, when I was in research, working with folks out of HP Labs and IBM Labs and never really been in that, how do you start something from scratch and grow it and, and see if, you know, whether it sticks or not, right? Working with early adopter customers and, and all of that. And so after, after that startup, I was at the point of you know thinking about should I hop back into a job or should I try and do something? And I, that's when I decided to, to, to launch Neotech Labs. And really what we try and do is we work with companies that are either early stage startups all the way through larger companies. And the goal is to sort of be that vehicle that, that helps transition ideas from that early stage to adoption. 
Uh, and so you could think of us the way, you know, I, I position it is that we're that trusted intermediary between when technologies are early stage and to early maturity and the adopters that want to consume them, right? Because there's always a lot of inherent unknowns and risks uh, when you're on the other side of that fence, so whether it's a new startup or whether it's an early stage technology and you're like, how do I integrate this into our product or into, into my business? What does it mean? And filling that gap in in a neutral way, right? So it's always, you know, one thing when you're talking to a potential technology vendor, whether it's startup or not, and saying, they're going to have their spiel on, on why it's a thing you should adopt. And, and we try to come in there and, and provide kind of that neutral voice in position. And so it's it's fun because it's, it's again, a way to, like I said, we're helping innovation get to market. And so we get to see both sides of this, right? Uh, and working, you know, it, it get, let's just work with early stage founders that are sometimes all the way and just the idea of like, I have this idea for a product or a market all the way up through companies that are large enterprises that are evaluating, we have this problem to solve, here are three different technologies, help us figure out what's right for us type of thing. So got it. And can you share a little bit about one of the projects that you're working on within Neotech Labs, if you can? Sure. So, so, you know, I think one of the things that we've gotten into, and again, this, this gets into where, where there's sometimes ambiguity or even let's say uh, a lot of noise in the market of, of a certain technology so um, i think i think ai is definitely one where uh you say artificial intelligence and it means different things to, <laughs> to different people and, and whether you're a researcher or if you're somebody that's trying to figure out what does this mean for a business two completely different ends of that spectrum right so one of the one of the projects we're working on now is helping kind of working with a company that's producing a a, a product which integrates ai so they, they've taken i think the mindset of even if we provided you the AI directly, a lot of companies don't know what to do with it. So instead, they integrate it into a specific product for a vertical. So in this case, they're they're creating sales enablement software, and they they integrate specific AI technologies within that to deliver a solution. So it's interesting because it, again, it's right in that niche of here's something that's out there that sounds sexy, that's interesting, that we know is going to change how we work, but the market isn't always ready for that immediately. And so you you see these players coming in. They're basically delivering solutions versus just a technology. And that's much more minimal than to going to market and, and having a good solid sales story that you can position around. Got it. Okay. So Rapa, I know we're coming up on the end of our hour here. And I wanted to ask you, are you working on any other projects that you'd like to share? And also, where can people find you to learn more about STEM Ed Labs or Neotech Labs or about you? So in terms of where to find us, you can find STEM Ed Labs at stemedlabs.org and uh, Neotech Labs with N-E-O-T-E-K labs.com. And you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. One of the virtues of having a very unique last name is I'm not hard to find. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. And I look forward to hearing more about STEM Ed Labs and other projects you're working on with Neotech Labs. Great. Thanks, Nanti. Thanks again for listening. This is Nati Rodriguez, and I leave you with my favorite quote by Albert Einstein. The significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them.